We're kind of far out, aren't we? We should probably go a little higher. I said, yeah, that's probably a good idea. So we went up another 100 feet or so. The plane still hadn't started that turn back, and I hear this pop. And the instructor had pulled the release. I thought, oh boy, this is going to get interesting. So we uh, turned around because we're out in the middle of Lake Elsinore now, and we're going to keep going for the coast of the lake. And if we make it, great. And if we've got more energy by the time we get there, we'll try to make the runway. But you know, start getting ready for a water landing. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello and welcome to the podcast. If this is your first time joining us, thank you. We hope you enjoy this episode and check out our large library of soaring adventures from pilots all over the globe as well. Today we will be soaring over the Sonoran Desert in southern Arizona with our friend Eric Redwick from the Tuxton Soaring Club. Cross-country soaring in this area frequently offers conditions conducive to flights in excess of 500 kilometers while reaching altitudes over 14,000 feet. With a field elevation of only 2,100 feet MSL, it's common for pilots to reach altitudes over 10,000 feet AGL in the vicinity of the airfield, a soaring playground for sure. Eric has been flying gliders since he was 13, so we are excited to hear what he has to say today. And immediately following our chat with Eric, we will be joining our good friend Sergio, the Soaring Master, for another super informative segment. Hello, Eric. Welcome to Soaring the Sky. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. I'm excited to learn more about you as well, of course, as where you're soaring the Tuxton Soaring Club. But first, I would like to hear about how your soaring journey got started. Well, Chuck, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate this. This is a kind of an amazing opportunity. Uh, get some of our stories out there and uh, appreciate what you're doing for the soaring community. So uh, keep it up. Uh, my name is Eric Redwick. I uh, started soaring when I was uh, 13 years old out at the Lake Elsinore Soaring Club in Southern California. Started soaring at 13, soloed at 14 years old, and just kind of kept uh, running with their program out there. They had a junior program that uh, allowed people to uh, work the line for a day, and for every day that you ran wings and fueled the tow plane, uh, you would get a credit for instruction flights. So I just did that while I was a, a student in school, and uh, got me through solo, got me uh, all sorts of experience in flight time, and uh, eventually left for college, so headed out to Arizona. Started uh, flying with the Tucson Soaring Club, and that's where I earned my private pilot certificate in gliders. Quickly became interested in cross-country soaring. Reached out to a couple of our uh, prominent cross-country soaring members, uh, namely uh, Randy Acri and Tony Smolder. Probably seen some of those names around the contest scene or on OLC. When I reached out to them for some coaching, they said the club policy was that I had to finish my five-hour duration towards my silver badge. So on uh, June 20th, 09, I uh, went and took a Grobe 103 out and started flying around. Tony that day uh, took one of our club members out for a coaching flight in the Duo Discus. They ended up having a 740-kilometer flight. Oh, nice. uh, Randy Acri ended up having a 680-kilometer flight in his uh, Apple Bay Zuni. And everybody came back, and I was just kind of flying around the uh, the glider field at uh, probably about 10,000 feet. Wow. And uh, so everybody came back, tied down, and 
I get a call on the radio from our line chief that morning. He says, hey, 1-5 Mike, are you still out? I said, yeah. <laughs> he says, well, everybody's on the ground. Do you want to come join us? Says, yeah, sure. So I came back and finished a seven hour and 36 minute flight. So uh, nice. that was my that was my five hour duration. <laughs> yeah, you took care of the five hours and then some. <laughs> right. And I had heard so many stories about people just missing it by a minute or two. And I said, yeah, oh, after I hit five hours, you know, oh, let's go the extra 20 minutes. Oh, what's another hour? And so that was, uh, that was a great introduction into just uh, staying aloft. I heard a great saying a few years later, and this was a, a perfect day for that. It was a uh, uh, it was the kind of day that you could have flown a, a toolbox. I mean, it was just that <laughs> yeah. kind of a, a soaring day. So Very nice. Um, yeah, about uh, four days later, Tony Smolder calls me up and says, hey, do you want to fly in the duo? I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. So that was my first introduction to cross-country soaring. We had a great 500-kilometer flight and uh, just really showed me what uh, cross-country soaring was all about. So later that year, got my uh, silver badge and gold badge and was really interested in the, the competition scene. So um, through the year, Tucson Soaring Club was very active with having these task days, which uh, kind of brought people together and gave a common goal, kind of pointed people towards where the conditions were, were better and and uh, gave people kind of a an idea of what a task looked like without having the whole competition scene. So I found it great for my goal setting. Um, Tony Smolder was a, a very active member of the club at that point. And those who know him know, uh, can kind of understand the energy that he brings to the soaring community, particularly the racing community. So uh, uh, he kind of kept the Tucson Soaring Club in that whole cross country and, uh, and racing mindset. We had weekend coaching and, and all these barbecues. And so, uh, uh, you know, I just kind of kept active with the club for, for about a year, competed in my first contest the next year, which was actually the uh, Region 9 contest in 2010, the last contest the Tucson Soaring Club held. I'd like to get some details on the history of the club and, of course, your fleet there. Also, maybe talk about the location. I know you're near a large Air Force base there, and that in itself has to make things pretty interesting. Maybe also you can share with us a typical soaring season there in Arizona. Yeah, sure. The club history is pretty extensive. And, you know, when, when uh, we first started talking about doing this, it really got me into kind of diving into some of the club history documents and really trying to understand where it started. Um, our club actually just celebrated its 55th anniversary. It started on November 15th of 1967. So uh, as far as soaring clubs go, that that's pretty lengthy history. Uh, yeah. Its first documented club meeting was held later that month in the uh, uh, University of Arizona's Aerospace Engineering Building. So that was kind of where the founders had started. They wanted to incorporate soaring into the, the education of the community and kind of bringing youth into the whole soaring scene. They initially operated out of Ryan Field, which is uh, still an airport about 12 miles to the west of the Tucson International Airport, just outside of the Class Charlie Airspace. Uh, in the late 70s, they kind of realized that uh, the traffic at Ryan was really no longer conducive to the growing sport. It, they had a lot of flight training operations going in and out of there. So they started looking for a new home. And in 1983, the uh, club relocated to our current location, which is the El Tiro Glider Port in Marana, Arizona, about 20 miles outside of the Tucson airport. Okay. The airfield itself is kind of an interesting history as well. Um, it was actually developed in the 1940s. The Army Air Corps developed uh, the Marana Army Airfield and five satellite auxiliary fields that they used for Army Air Corps training kind of during that World War II time frame. 
these uh, fields were used for basic flight training for uh, transport pilot and uh, instrument and navigation flight training. Our field back in the 40s was actually known as Saguaro Number no. 5. That was the, They had a, a different name for all of the auxiliary fields. So we were one of the auxiliary fields. In uh, the late 1940s, after the, the war was over, it just kind of went unattended for a while, and it eventually got listed on the sectional as Marana Number no. 5. Around 1957, the field was reactivated by the U.S. Air Force, and they started operating T-34s and T-28 trainer aircraft uh, in and out of there. It only lasted about three years, and the field was abandoned again in the early 1960s. It eventually got taken over by the Department of the Interior. And then in 1983, around the time the Tucson Soaring Club was looking for a new home, they were able to come up with a lease agreement with the Department of the Interior. So in the 1990s, uh, that particular field was still owned by the Department of the Interior, but uh, the surrounding area was kind of incorporated by the Ironwood National Monument. And so now our lease, instead of being through the uh, Department of the Interior, is through the Bureau of Land Management. We, we basically lease a section of the Ironwood National Monument. Huh, interesting. Well, So yeah, field's got a pretty rich history. Um, as far as the club is concerned, the Tucson Soaring Club maintains the land uh, with five operational runways. When the Army Air Corps had it, it was basically set up as a big square. And the idea was they could land their aircraft really in any direction. They had some facilities established. All of the facilities that the Army Air Corps and, and the Air Force had set up are, are gone. And, and we haven't really found many remnants of, of anything that they developed. But uh, when the Tucson Soaring Club got a hold of the land, they basically carved out five runways. And the idea was that uh, we could really conduct operations in any direction, regardless of where the wind was coming from, we could kind of continue to operate. So we have uh, two east-west runways, two north-south runways, and then one kind of diagonal runway that we have designated as our, our winch runway. Um, we don't currently have a winch operation, but uh, if and when we do, that would be kind of where we would set that up. Um, all of our runways are about 5,000 feet in length. Most of the runways can probably land two gliders side by side as far as width goes. So we've really got a lot of capacity in terms of uh, being able to land a large volume of aircraft. Um, right now, the Tucson Soaring Club has about 100 active members. We operate a fleet of uh, two towplanes, six gliders. Our primary trainers are two Grobe 103s. We also have a PW6 and a new-to-us ASK-21. We received that uh, middle of last year, so we're starting to get used to training and operating with that aircraft. We also have a PW-5 and an ASW-19 um, geared more towards our cross-country program. That's a nice fleet. Yeah, so it, it gets us going. We kind of fall under, uh, well, we're a 501c3. We're a nonprofit organization. And under our Articles of Corporation, uh, which is kind of the cornerstone of how we operate and manage our club, we really have a focus on fostering the art and sport of motorless flight. We kind of hinge on that a lot with uh, when we make decisions as far as where the club's going and different businesses that the, the club wants to get involved with. We also have the article saying to develop interest in gliding and soaring as a medium of education. And that kind of goes back to our relationship with the University of Arizona, which is really big in the, the Tucson area. So we find it important to partner with other nonprofit organizations. And one that we started partnering with last year was really interesting. It's called Freedom's Wings Arizona. It's a subsidiary of Freedom's Wings International, which is an organization developed to provide an opportunity for people with disabilities to fly. Tucson Soaring Club provides the support and equipment at cost and Freedom Wings uh, uses raised funds to provide the flight opportunity. So essentially, 
uh, the the guests that we take flying, it's it's a uh, free opportunity for them to uh, experience flying in a glider. They're partnered with the Disabilities Resource Center, which uh, is also partnered with the Adaptive Athletics at the University of Arizona. And that ensures accessibility for students uh, all across the University of Arizona campus. So by partnering with them, we're able to kind of show them some of the equipment that we have that allows us to safely get uh, people in and out of the gliders and allow them to experience what we're uh, what we're doing out in Arizona. Since the inception of that partnership, we've actually conducted 11 Freedom's Wings flights. And uh, I, uh, I talked to the president this morning actually about it because I wanted to get some of his feedback on how that program's going. And uh, he gave me a really interesting quote. Uh, the, the president was uh, Chuck Pinney, the president of the Freedom's Wings Arizona. He said, one of the reflections they got is, uh, is this, it's so liberating to be up there soaring like a bird and to look down at their wheelchair on the ground and see that it's not holding them back. And if you really think about that, the opportunity that our club is trying to partner with and allow these people to do, it's, it's really powerful. So, you know, I think that's a, a neat opportunity that, that we provide. And right now, I think we're the, uh, the only operation that is, uh, uh, supporting that organization. Yeah, we need more of more of that going on for sure. Yeah, you know, and, and it's often hard to share what we experience in gliding. I think that's one of the challenges of our sport is uh, showing people what makes it enjoyable. And so things like this really expand that horizon and, and allow other people to see and, and hear and feel what we get to see. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Laura, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Now, Eric, you have a contest coming up, right? Yeah, we do. So uh, uh, Tony Smolder approached me uh, late last year and said, hey, there's no contests out west. What do you guys think about hosting one? I said, yeah, I'll bring it up to the board. So uh, we decided to reignite that whole cross-country motivation in our club. And in 2023, so this year, end of May, we're excited to be hosting the Region 9 Sports and Club Class Contest. Um, we're holding it at the end of May because that's traditionally the week that our club hosts uh, kind of an internal or, or local event that we call the OLC Challenge. That week just traditionally has good soaring conditions. It's it's late enough in the, the spring where we're getting the good heating, but it's not too late in the summer where we're getting that monsoon moisture. So we get yeah. some really nice days. We occasionally get those cloud streets, but in general, we've got some just really nice blue soaring days. Is there a deadline for people to sign up? Are you full? I mean, what's the status on that? Yeah, there is. So uh, right now we're open to 40 pilots and the limitation there is uh, just uh, how many tow planes and tow pilots we can have. I've got 30 right. people signed up right now and the okay, deadline right. to sign up with the entry fee is uh, March 29th. So okay. 
um, yeah, we're, we're accepting all applications. We haven't uh, started a wait list yet, but uh, hoping that the, the excitement and enthusiasm is there and hope to fill up all 40 of those slots. It'd be a great contest. I'll be the contest manager. Tony Smolder volunteered to be the contest director. Um, we're trying to partner with some local soaring operations in Arizona, as well as some local Arizona businesses to just uh, really give people an idea of what soaring's like around here and what some of the uh, things that Arizona has to offer uh, are particularly around the Tucson area. Very cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll put some uh, links in the show notes here so people oh, can get a hold of you if they're interested. So, Eric, I want to ask you, what are some of your most interesting flights in a glider? I've had uh, quite a few interesting flights, um, and I'm trying to keep it a little bit geared towards flying around Arizona. I've, I've had the opportunity to fly Arizona, California, New Mexico, Texas, a little bit of Utah, so mostly the southwestern states, but uh, definitely uh, some really interesting soaring conditions in, uh, in Arizona. Um, one of my most memorable flights in cross-country soaring early in my cross-country soaring experience was actually uh, just north of Phoenix or northwest of Phoenix out in Aguila, Arizona. I kind of mentioned we did these weekend soaring contests uh, earlier and uh, every once in a while we travel to another site and bring a tow plane out there and do some soaring uh, excursions out that way. So we we were flying out of Sampley that weekend, had a great weekend, soaring conditions were really nice. But all of us kind of had in the back of our mind the forecast for Monday. Monday was just looking spectacular. And obviously everybody couldn't stick around for that extra day, but a few of us could. So we decided to do a little bit of a drag and drop. Uh, The the conditions were uh, forecasted to be good enough that we could fly from Aguila up to the southern rim of the Grand Canyon and then back. And uh, that, that definitely got us all excited. So we uh, got the planes ready that morning and uh, took off, and Tony Smolder and Robert Lindemann and I kind of headed up north on this drag and drop. I was flying in uh, Randy Acre's Apple Bay Zuni at the time, and uh, the flight up was just absolutely spectacular. Cloud streets as far as the eye could see, and we got up under the clouds, got up all the way to uh, about Flagstaff, uh, just kind of northwest of Sedona area, which is really some beautiful terrain. And as happens frequently in Arizona, the the weather overdeveloped a little bit earlier than expected. So we couldn't make it all the way to the Grand Canyon that day, but we did see it from a distance. We got up to Humphreys Peak, which is uh, the highest point in Arizona. And so I I spent a little bit of time looking at the peak. About the time I turned around, Tony Smolder was our our coach. He kind of dragged us up there and I turned around. I can't find Tony anymore called him up on the radio. He said, yeah, I'm heading back. I'm halfway there. So I thought, oh no, here we go. So it was a true <laughs> drag and drop because I had to find my way home. So Robert Lindemann and I turned around and followed the cloud street back. And it, I think it was memorable because it was still early enough in my cross country soaring that uh, I, I was still flying with a little bit of a, a leash on my home airport. This experience, when we turned around, we were 230 kilometers away from the airport that we took off from. So landing uh-huh. out at that point would have been a very long retrieve on a Monday where we all needed <laughs> to be back at work the next day. Oh, So, uh, you know, making it home was just, it was really exciting. You know, when we got back, we all celebrated, had a great time. And, and I thought that type of coaching was really good for, for what I wanted. So that kind of kicked off my, my soaring or my cross-country soaring. Um, but really around here, I mean, there, there's so many good, memorable flights, even as uh, recently as last summer, back in July, 
we had a midweek day that popped up and uh, a couple of us looked at the soaring forecast, got a tow plane together and said, yeah, let's go give it a shot. And the day looked like it was going to be conducive for a 750 kilometer flight. So I tried declaring a 750 kilometer triangle. Um, Randy Acre took off in his uh, carrot and we, uh, we kind of headed south and then east. And just like I said, in Arizona, unfortunately, especially in late July, we get these overdeveloped days that, that just overdevelop either heavier or earlier than, than forecast. So we got out to our eastern point and it was just overdeveloping. The triangle wasn't going to work. So we turned around and headed back, started charting a new course, and we found this beautiful line. It looked, again, like clouds were just endless as far as the eye could see. So we lined up on that, headed northwest, and I, I'm pretty sure it was about 150, maybe 160 kilometers that we just bounced cloud to cloud all the way across the, the beautiful Sonoran Desert. Finally got to the, the end of the clouds and turned back and the clouds continued to work all the way back. And it was just running this line back and forth uh, under the clouds. Uh, it was a really good flight. And I, I think as far as looking back at some of my flights, that's probably the most relaxed 700 to 750 kilometer flight that I've done because the clouds were just honest. They were working for us and we were able to make a really good flight out of it, even though we, we didn't get to complete our declaration. Yeah, that sounds like a beautiful flight for sure. Eric, one of the most important things that we like to talk about here on the podcast, of course, is safety. Do you have any advice you could share with us that would help us be better and safer pilots? I think there's so many topics, and I, I appreciate the fact that you do this because safety in, in gliding and safety in aviation is such an important topic. I think we can all talk about you know how important a, a thorough pre-flight is or how important good hydration is on our long cross-country flights, but I think one thing that really uh, I've found to be important, and I try to incorporate this when I'm, I'm teaching my students, is uh, something that I heard about a, at a safety talk at one of the contests I've attended, kind of regarding how you handle emergencies. And, and, and I just found it really helpful. Uh, we often hear that phrase, aviate, navigate, and then communicate, kind of in that order. And it sets up a hierarchy for where we put our efforts and our attention. I just find that sometimes we have to remember the first thing we're supposed to do as, as pilots, as aviators, is just fly the airplane. So the company I work for in, in a jet that's flown by pilots with decades of experience and tens of thousands of flight hours, we have a, a quick reaction card, which is when we have an emergency, we pull that card out. And that's kind of the first thing we look at when we, we start to diagnose our problem. And at the very top of that QRC, the first thing it says is fly the plane. And it seems like an odd reminder, but in the heat of an emergency, sometimes we need that reminder. Just grab the flight controls, make sure that the plane's flying, then deal with the emergency. Because if we're not flying the plane, we're just going to start introducing some more emergencies. And I feel like in soaring, that that really has a, a bigger impact. We, we constantly fly in this uh, changing environment. And when we encounter a situation that we're unfamiliar with, we need to remember we're still flying the aircraft. Take a moment to evaluate what you what you have and what you don't have, and don't necessarily dwell on what we don't have. Keep flying the airplane. Uh, it could be that we flew towards a landable field that uh, when we finally got over it, looked less than desirable. And we have to just adapt to that. We have to figure out, okay, what's the next step? How do we get out of the situation? Or how do we use what we have in order to uh, make this the safest outcome? Could be a loss of flight instruments or loss of flight control surfaces, but 
either way, we, we make this continual evaluation of what do we have? How do I continue to fly the aircraft and then start working on the plane uh, or the plan of how do we get out of the emergency? How do we get to the, the safest outcome? The concept of flying the aircraft first is really just to never lose sight of who's flying the plane as well as uh, adapting to the new situation. Understand that navigation is second in that hierarchy, followed by communication. And the, the big concept there is in a single pilot environment, especially, which is mostly what we're flying with, especially in a racing environment. We can certainly ask for information or help over the radio, but the reality is we have to continue to fly that aircraft while we're getting that information or while we're, we're receiving that help. Nobody can fly the airplane for us. And, you know, we don't, we don't have that autopilot that we can just turn on and gliders to, to kind of take our hands off the controls for a moment. We have to continue to fly the plane. So I think that's a really important concept for us to understand, especially in the soaring community. Absolutely. Great advice. That's why we like to ask this question because we get some great answers and it gets everybody thinking about it. So Eric, what are your personal plans in the glider for the future? Something I've really been enjoying is uh, competing in the club class. It's uh, a really great class as far as uh, just people and uh, uh, talented pilots that uh, are involved in that. So I'd like to continue competing in the club class. I probably won't make it out to a club class nationals this year, but definitely want to put it on my calendar for next year. You know, every contest I go to, I feel like I learn something. I improve myself a little bit. And, and really, I, I don't particularly race to win. I enjoy the challenge of racing, but most of the time I'm just racing against myself. The best part of the whole racing environment is just the people and the, the social aspect. Uh, recently, I uh, bought into an ASW 27 and I'm kind of hoping to start dabbling into the 15 meter class. That's uh, very wow. competitive in our country. And uh, I think uh, there's a lot to be learned there from some of those extremely talented pilots. So not going to rush into a nationals or anything, but uh, start learning that ASW 27. And hopefully in a few years, we'll be able to participate in that class. And and then ultimately, uh, with this year hosting the Region 9 contest, if it's successful, I could see uh, our, myself and our club trying to help out with uh, hosting some more contests. So I think the, the future's bright for soaring, and I hope the future's bright for soaring in uh, Tucson. Also, you know, here on the podcast, we always like to give our guests a chance to give a shout out to those, of course, that have been influential in their aviation journey. Would you like to do that? You know, I, uh, I I looked at this a uh, little bit, and uh, all the names that I've mentioned earlier have been extremely influential in my soaring journey as well as my aviation career journey. And so, you know, a big big thanks to them. I couldn't possibly name off every single person that's been an influence in in my soaring career or my uh, my aviation career. But you know, ultimately to the members of the Tucson Soaring Club and the Lake Elsinore Soaring Club, as well as uh, the the obvious support from my family. It's, uh, it's really made this a great path, uh, an enjoyable career, an enjoyable uh, experience in soaring. And I hope to uh, not only continue to participate, but uh, facilitate that same positive environment for our new members and our new up and coming uh, junior members and, and just make sure that they have the same experiences and opportunities that uh, were afforded to me by all these great people. Absolutely important. So, Eric, you heard about our soaring lightning round, right? Yeah, <laughs> we've, we've gotten some pretty interesting answers and it's a lot of fun. We asked you some quick questions and then, of course, you fire back with some answers as quick as you can. And you can always pass if you want to do that. It's up to you. So what okay. do you think? Yeah, let's go for it. All right, let's do it. Do you fly for speed? 
distance or you don't care? <laughs> In a contest speed for uh, pretty much everything around the Tucson Soaring Club, it's mostly distance. That's that's the game winner right there is who walks away with the best distance. When do you check the pressure in the main tire per flight, per day, per month, per season, or when it looks low? <laughs> per flight. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. Your emergency plan when the tow plane power fails on takeoff roll and you're at 40 knots. At 40 knots. Ooh, that's pretty low, low and slow. So, uh, you know, we, we teach this a lot, uh, pretty extensively and, and we've had some similar things uh, happen at the Tucson Soaring Club. So this topic gets a little bit interesting, but uh, you know, a, a loss of power or loss of tow rope at uh, low altitude, uh, particularly if we're still on the ground, uh, the, the tow plane is supposed to kind of try to go to the left a little bit and the glider goes to the right a little bit. And ultimately we stay on the ground, try to stay on the runway, stay within the confines of the improved surface. Once we're airborne, it definitely gets tricky. So that zero to 200 feet uh, can can get really interesting because we quickly run out of runway. We run out of space to maneuver. So, um, you know, between that zero and 200 feet, ideally, if we had a rope break or lost power, same thing. Tow plane's going to try to edge to the left a little bit. Glider's going to try to edge to the right a little bit. Um, but we're going to try to get the glider back on the ground as quickly and safely as possible. Bleed off any energy before uh, we, we start running out of space to maneuver. And then the idea at uh, 200 feet, and this is a you know kind of a commonly debated topic, but at 200 feet, uh, you know we're we're always taught that we can make that safe return back to the field. What I like to teach my students is that the 200 foot uh, mark is more of an evaluation. It's uh, an opportunity for us to look back and say, hey, can I actually turn around and make it? Because 200 feet at a quarter mile away from the, uh, the the end of the runway versus 200 feet at two miles from the runway makes a big difference. And I had an opportunity. I know this is a long-winded uh, lightning round explanation, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I I had a really unique thing happen to me at uh, in training uh, at the Lake Elsinore Soaring Club early, early on before I had soloed. Our tow plane was just not making power that day. High combination of high temperature, high density altitude, the engine was just getting maybe a little bit weaker and so we took off and the tow plane typical course was to climb up to about 400 feet and then make a left turn and so we're we're cruising out over the lake at lake elsinore and and i knew that there was a rope break coming because that was what was briefed on the ground and we, we keep cruising out away away over the lake about 200 feet the instructor says well we're kind of far out, aren't we? We should probably go a little higher. I said, yeah, that's probably a good idea. So we went up another 100 feet or so, but the tow plane still hadn't started that turn back. And I hear this pop. And the instructor had pulled the release. I thought, oh boy, this is going to get interesting. So we uh, we turned around because we're out in the middle of Lake Elsinore now and looked back and yeah, we were a good mile, mile and a half off the coast of the, the lake. And I said, well... <laughs> We're going to keep going for the coast of the lake, and if we make it, great. And if we've got more energy by the time we get there, we'll try to make the runway. But, you know, start getting ready for a water landing. And fortunately, it was just really calm conditions. We were able to take that 300 feet and go all the way that, that mile and a half. We actually made it just about to the end of the runway, ended up landing in a little field just off the side of the runway. But uh, you know, going wow. back to the, the the initial question, there is, uh, you know, where where do you make those evaluations? Is it, it it's really situation dependent? And I think having a rote 
concept of, uh, um, you know, how you, you make that decision, whether it's a go, no go, uh, that can be a little bit dangerous. You have to be adaptive to the situation. And that's what we did that day. (laughs) What is your favorite soaring video? I'm not sure if you're into watching the soaring videos on YouTube, but yeah, soaring videos. There's there's a couple good ones. I uh, early on in uh, soaring, I watched uh, the the old gladiators of the sky that uh, Grand Prix style flying out in uh, uh, Omerima, New Zealand. I always thought the the imagery and the video on that was just really awesome. It kind of captured that thing that we tell people that we do, but uh, can't really uh, describe it fully. What music do you associate with soaring? Classical, rock, theatrical. Or nothing beats a chirping vario. <laughs> I don't typically fly with uh, with uh, music. I'm I'm the chirping vario type. <laughs> nice. If you could only pick just one, what glider port or region would be at the top of your bucket list of places to go soaring, and why? Wow. Um, you know, I've talked to a few people that have had the opportunity of flying out of uh, New Zealand, particularly Omerima, and. You know, I, I realize that that's a, a tough challenge these days, but I, I think soaring in Omerima is uh, kind of something that every glider pilot just aspires to. That uh, those soaring conditions and that scenery that they have is just looks spectacular. So that's something I'd like to do. Your favorite glider port accommodations: hangar, tent, RV, or your local motel? Yeah. <laughs> we uh, we recently started exploring the uh, the RV lifestyle, and uh, I got to be honest, that's pretty nice. Camping out on the the glider field and just being able to wake up, walk out to your glider that's uh, there's there's something to be said about that. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Forget about the tents. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it. It's not fun. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so you get back home after a long day of cross country soaring in the summer. What's the first thing you do? Take a shower, drink a cold beverage of choice, look at your flight trace and start making notes of what you did wrong, or just flop on the bed and take a nap while still wearing your bucket hat. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely uh, cracking open the beverage of choice while uploading the flight to uh, the online source of your uh, choosing. Uh, there you go. Nice combination. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Eric. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you and, and hearing about Arizona. And if somebody wants to come out and soar there, what would you suggest? You know, we uh, we are always open to guests. Uh, TucsonSoaring.org is our website. It's got some great contacts on there. Uh, we have a guest membership for people who are uh, just transiting through and want to check out the Soaring Club, check out the uh, Soaring Conditions. So definitely invite them to uh, come on out. Give us a heads up that you're on the way out. We'll get you processed for a guest membership and uh, get you behind our tow planes. Uh, otherwise, Tucson Soaring Club is very active in our instruction program. Uh, I think last year we we gave uh, conducted check rides on uh, I think six or seven pilots and got uh, some new pilots trained up so we're very active in cross country as well as flight training anybody interested uh, is more than welcome to come check us out and see if our soaring schedule fits your soaring schedule excellent I'll put the links there in the show notes and I'm sure people will be interested in soaring in such a beautiful part of the country and the world for that matter yeah hope so Eric, you take care. Awesome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate what you're doing. Absolutely. You're welcome. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Sora Master here. 
today we're going to talk about how to improve your cross-country flying. First, let's make a quick review about the one of the main tools out there for uh, cross-country pilots, uh, which is the MacReady theory. And even though it's an old theory, it still is uh, one of the best tools we have out there for us to conduct our flights and to plan our tasks. The memory theory uh, works uh, by relating three different types of speeds. The expected average ahead, the expected climb average ahead, uh, the speed that the pilot maintains, in a, which is uh, dependent on this uh, assessment, and the achieved cross-country speed, which is the speed that the pilot would advance in a navigation, taking the time stop for climbing into account. So, as I mentioned, the theory starts with an assessment by the pilot of what is the expected average ahead. This means that the pilot shall read the weather ahead and this might be assessing the, the next cloud ahead or the entire area ahead and coming up with a number, with an expected uh, vertical speed. When he does that, uh, he sets in his ring with an index arrow in a, a regular mechanical uh, MacReady ring. Uh, he sets the expected average ahead and this index arrow when shifted in accordance with the expected average ahead will make the variable needle point to the speeds that the pilot shall maintain when flying. So when the pilot experiences an updraft, the, by following the needle indications he, he will uh, deaccelerate and by following the, the needle when experiencing a downdraft the pilot shall accelerate. Well, the flight profile of a pilot using the MacReady ring is filled with speed changes as the pilot constantly changes the speed in accordance with the needle. And the problem is that chasing the needle may do more damage than good. You'll be constantly working with non-optimum G-loading as you deaccelerate and accelerate. Uh, this will most certainly damp out airframe responses from updrafts along the way. And this will distract you from other tasks because your main focus will be on uh, reading the speed to fly and uh, following it. And we all know that speeding in sync gains little. Uh, it's quite the opposite actually. You lose a lot. So let's uh, break down some uh, assumptions of the MacReady theory. Uh, firstly, it assumes a steady atmosphere. And we all know that this is something that doesn't exist. Uh, all of the uh, air mass in between thermals is filled with updrafts and downdrafts and this is anything but steady. So if we uh, do use all of the updrafts in between thermals in our favor, we will be able to extract greater cross-country averages than those predicted by the theory because the theory assumes that they, this updraft in between thermals aren't there. So the second important MacReady theory assumption is that it assumes that thermal centering is instantaneous. And we all know that it we, that we take at least one turn to center lift. 
So uh, the thing with thermal sentry is that we need to uh, improve our uh, techniques uh, to the maximum and as to be able to center thermals with the minimum time possible. Because even if we are masters in doing it, we will simply be able to extract the uh, what the theory predicts. If you are not doing that, we will most certainly not extract the theoretical cross-country speed predicted by the theory. So we need to uh, leave thermal centering to a minimum. But one interesting thing is that even with those assumptions, the theory remains valid today. There are a number of scientific papers out there uh, discussing uh, its validity and all of them have said that even though it has some assumptions, the theory still, still is valid. So for us cross-country pilots trying to improve our marks, what shall we do in order to uh, improve ourselves? Well, if, you, if we analyze the theory, we'll uh, see that the most remarkable gains in terms of cross-country average are achieved with the increase of the discipline's effective glide ratio by sinking less. So by constantly using all of the updraft along the way to reduce the sailplane's sink and in that way uh, we shall save two or three thermals from uh, turning. This is exactly what we want. And uh, since the 80s the concept of extended glides has been uh, used exactly to do that. Uh, and that. The concept of extended glide uh, can be summarized in a simple philosophy, stopping to climb is inconvenient. And the main goal is to maximize the effective glide ratio. Uh, we only dolphin flying when needed or we leave it to the strongest days. And during the inter-thermal cruise phase, we make the quick use of updraft a rule in order to preserve the glide and to make the airflow around the wings steady uh, with less speed changes. We only make speed changes uh, in due to extended updraft regions or extended downdraft regions. Otherwise, we would be cruising with the reference speed to fly. We, in order to do that, we fly with slightly reduced Macready settings in the order of uh, 0.2 or 0.3 meters per second. This will be around 0.6 knots. Uh, just in order to remain higher and to be able to discard thermals by doing so. Remaining higher it will be uh, the ultimate result of this strategy because by constantly using updrafts that we would all otherwise discard, we'll be able to remain higher for a longer period of time. By remaining higher and flying longer distance without stopping, uh, we'll most probably find a greater number of thermals and hence we'll be able to select them and without making this a suicidal mission. So we'll be able to be very picky with thermals and that's exactly what this theory is about, with what extended glides is all about. It's about stopping to climb only the strongest thermals around uh, and reducing the number of thermals needed for you to keep airborne and to complete your task. Uh, in order to do that, we must extensively use 
energy lines. And in order to do that, we need to assess it with NATO. NATO variable will become the main instrument for us to cruise in between thermals. In order to do that, we need to obviously uh, expose ourselves, expose the sailplane to these updrafts. And how to identify them? Well, by improving our weather reading skills, by aligning every condensation sign along the way that indicates the presence of rising air patches. The key for you to achieve these improvements in your cross-country speed uh, is firstly to train yourself both to improve your weather reading skills and your flying techniques. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lack of uh, training methods out there for certain pilots. And since 2020, uh, I've developed the Surrey Master course, which teaches pilots a self-training method that greatly improves performance. Uh, this method is 100% aligned, is filled with in-depth lectures about the topics regarding Surrey, and you also have all the tools to run the Surrey Master method, uh, anti-fragile method that makes performance improvement a lot easier and you achieve your goals in a much faster way. The Story Master course is open once a year and we have opened a new class, the 2023 class, if you want to join. Uh, do as pilots from other 15 nations have already done and join it online. Uh, you can look for information at my Instagram channel, at Master, or you can go to our website, surreymastercourse.com. See you in the next one, guys. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at SoaringTheSky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.